Well, the hole in our floor is finally filled in. So the the new trench they did, drilled for the for the new uh, drain that got filled in. Our inspection, our first inspection passed. I think we're still waiting on the second inspection with the windows on now. What's the new drain for? Because we moved the laundry room where it is today oh, okay. into a separate part of the house, and you drill in your fountain or drill. Jack, yeah, we had jackhammer. We had jackhammer. <clears throat> uh, basically, yeah, jackhammer a trench all the way through, and uh, put in a new drain because it had to be great. Had to grade a certain way. Yeah, oh yeah. Yep. And uh, so the inspector, it's got a drain. It's got a. It's got a. It takes. It still uses gravity, right? Yeah, it's nothing, still uses gravity. Nothing pumping the stuff out of your house. Right. It's just flowing downhill slowly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's weird to see the the dirt underneath your house, but uh, I got to see that. Yeah, it's right in the middle of your house. <laughs> it's inside. <laughs> the outside dirt is now inside. Yeah. He's like stepping over it. <laughs> and I swear our contractors were not conscious of the fact that people were still living there. So like there's this huge yeah, trench that goes yeah. into an exterior wall. Goes through an exterior wall. And so I'm like, they didn't they didn't cover this. They like didn't, a piece of like plastic a huge or hole. something. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. this huge hole and like a squirrel or a raccoon's gonna get in for sure. Yeah. And so or, I had to plug that hole. And then there's like they switched one of the switches from the inside to the other side of the wall, which is, used to be the exterior, is now going to be an interior. But that had a big gaping hole and I had to put something over that because yeah. I didn't want bugs coming in. Right. Uh, mainly because I've been leaving the light on in that area because I don't want anybody accidentally, either in the middle of the night, whatever, just walking through there and falling through the floor. So I had the light on. Well, I'm, that's going to attract bugs. And so oh, now i got to yeah. plug all these holes and make sure bugs aren't getting in. Yep. So, yeah. Anyway, um, well, good luck with that. So last week we did the first half of the interview with Shane. Mm-hmm. And so we'll do the second half. We'll play the second half of that at the end of this show. Awesome. And again, like I said to you when we were pre-gaming, um, remind <coughs> me like right before we end to announce that again because I realized it was kind of jarring. That's, but you have, that's your job to remind me. Oh, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do and also, I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I was clear... Um, what Shane, so Shane McLaughlin, what he, I know I talked about him, you know, he does demos, but he's, I think his title is like platform demo engineer or something like that. Mm. But he works for Salesforce. I don't know if I was clear about that either. I think that became apparent, but works for <laughs> Salesforce. Um, and I think he's worked in a couple of different capacities, but yeah. And he lives, he lives here in the, uh, the great state of Texas. Nice. Yep. So yeah, we'll do that second half of that, um, conversation at the end of this uh, at the end of you and my conversation. Which is going to be light because we both got things to do. Yep. And Which actually, means this is going to be an hour and a half show instead of a two-hour show. Yeah, hopefully. Maybe even less than that. Um, no, I'm hoping for less. I'm on, I'm, you and I are both on light sleep. I'm on light sleep because my wife's out of town mm. and I'm just not on the right sleep schedule for this stuff. The, the, all the stuff I'm having to do now. So I'm, yeah, I got, you know, I don't know, about five hours last night, which is just not enough for me. Yeah. I got to have like at least seven. Yeah, I'm dealing with major allergies, which I'm assuming the storm that came through kicked up because it, it hit my daughter hard over the weekend. That I was a weird seen, storm, man. I should have seen it coming. And then by Monday, I was just suffering really hard. And I still got a bit of a, it's not, it sounds like a smoker cough, but it's, it's that, that just asthmatic cough that I, can I have. Hear it. Yeah, you're so. a little kind of wheezy or whatever in your voice. <clears throat> anyway, I do have, um, there was one thing that came up, actually, it was today. I posted it in Slack, but I, I want to ask you this, and I don't know if you saw this or not, but what, let's say a, a client says to you, hey, we really need this ongoing kind of automated way just to 
um, be able to like, let's say, get a, a list of all the accounts in the system via like API. They, they specifically ask for like, you know, API, some automated way they can just call something. From an external source? Yeah, they're, they're, they're external. So it had to be like, you know, one of the web accessible APIs. Well, just the REST API, right? Um, and it has to be in CSV. They need CSV, you know. The bulk API? I think the bulk API sends back a CSV. So that's what I, that's what I ended up doing. The first thing I tried was, hey, there's this whole like analytics and or it's what is it called, the reports and dashboards API. I'm like, oh, I'll just oh, use no, you want to do that? Yeah. So that thing, I, <laughs> that actually brought back bad memories. I'm surprised you even brought that up. I mean, you should well, have PSD, uh, post uh, traumatic stress yeah, disorder for that. <laughs> um, but there's this, there's that whole fact map thing, and I've never just, I've never been able to wrap my brain around how to deal with that thing. And also, I mean, I don't, I don't know that Salesforce not, knows how to deal with that. Thing. Uh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> But it's not me. It's like it's the it's the client that, and I so I don't I certainly don't want to give them that. Oh, you know, look at here's look at this JSON this thing produces, and it's and it's like not at all what you want. I don't know. I don't understand that API. And oh yeah, I yeah. actually I, I mean I think what the the goal of it is is you can take you can call a report, execute a report, and with that output you can even with all kinds of you know groupings and summaries and all that kind of stuff you can you can literally like you could do your whole you know, full fidelity, uh, but completely custom rendering of a report on your own using that data outputs. Like that's how, I think that's why it's, it's so hard to deal with is because there's just, there's a lot of details involved and you have to know how to deal with. Yeah. Again, it's, it's not just a CSV. But I don't think it's, it's, it's not just an X and Y <clears throat> coordinates. You know, there's, there's a lot more going on to that with, with that, you know, you look at what you can do with reports. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do. And this API fully supports those things. Um, which means it's way overkill for what I'm trying to do. I just need to, I was hoping just like, hey, just hit this API and it's going to, it'll give you a CSV of what you need. That's what I wanted to give them. I thought there was, so once upon a time, we, there was a reporting feature where you could run a report and get it back as a CSV. You're basically calling the same URL that the export button calls. Yep. So, and that's, um, that's a hack in that it's not supported or published. And I thought with this new report API, you had that capability. Maybe no, I don't think so. I think you still may be able to do what that thing does, but um, it requires a browser session ID, mm. and so I'd have to. I mean, I'd have to give them some kind of script where they somehow got a browser because, like, if you log in to the, like the REST API or the SOAP API, that that is not that ID that you get for that um, doesn't have access to do UI stuff. Mm. So, like a lot of these things that are like servlet based, that the that you know, it's normally made for the UI to be controlling. Um, they don't. You you have to get a a browser cookie like that. The SID that that uh, Salesforce that SID cookie. Mm -hmm. um, that's what you have to have. And, and I mean, I guess I could probably write a. I mean, I'm sure you can post. I'm sure there's some URL you can post to with a username and password, and you get back. You know that the whatever the front door JSP or whatever it is that actually sets that that cookie. I mean, I could probably write something to do that, but. Again, that like that sounds like a rat hole to me. Like that sounds like okay, that seems reasonable enough. I'll try that, and you know, you just then you get about eight hours into that and figure out that that's not going to work for some yeah. obscure reason. So like, so I, I didn't go down that route. Um, but yeah, I, I originally ended up at the bulk API, and I was like, well, okay, that's that's pretty simple. I've used the bulk API. Um, it's not too bad. But there were some things I didn't remember. So the first thing is like, there's no uh, the bulk API for whatever reason does not use um, the 
doesn't use OAuth like the other APIs do, like the REST yeah. API. Um, you have. To, I mean, you can use OAuth to get a session. You ultimately have to get a session, right? You you the OAuth token does not does not work for it. You know, you can't give it an OAuth token, but you can use the OAuth token to get a session. And I think I you, don't think that works. At least I actually didn't try that, but the documentation says that doesn't work. The documentation mm-hmm. says you have to use the the actual the SOAP API login. You have to use the SOAP endpoint post to that. So that's what. So so I'll try to make a long story short here. I, so I, I was using Paw, which is kind of like Postman, except it's, I think, I guess it's Mac only. It's not as good as Postman, but... Um, there's a reason people pay 50 bucks for Paw. It's not because it's not as good as Postman. <laughs> or Postman. <laughs> Postman? Why do you say it? Postman. 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 Um, okay, so you post to the SOAP login URL, and you have to send a SOAP message. <laughs> All right, so I built that, I built that request out in, in Paw. Got that working. Then you have to uh, create a job. A, a, what do you call it? Yeah, a, a, a bulk job. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that requires you posting to the whole other kind of resource. And it's not SOAP, but it is XML. So it's, this is weird. It's REST. This is one of these weird things. XML over REST. It's, it's, or it's REST-ish. It's not. It's, it's HTTP, I think, is the, really the best thing you can say. But it only. Well, JSON doesn't make it REST. No, neither does XML. No. At, but I'm saying this is not REST. This is just HTTP. I mean, it's these are not REST. You know, these are not RESTful resources. It's not a it's not a self documenting like you know. It doesn't it doesn't give you it doesn't return to you links and things for resources and things like that. It's 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 XML over HTTP is what this is. But it's weird because I feel like nowadays Salesforce is really prefers the J, the JSON serialization for most, especially like the REST API, you can tell, I mean, first of all, like 99.9% of the documentation for the REST API is all JSON. And in fact, if you want to do XML, which Salesforce supports, and you know, the thing is, though, I don't know, I'd like to know, is there, because I feel like I'd, I've run across some things, but I can't remember what they are, but it seems like there's things that you can't do with the REST API if you're doing XML serialization, but I could be wrong. Mm. Anyway, if you want to figure out, well, how do I what message, what XML format does Salesforce ex- expect for the for the REST API? They don't actually document that anywhere. All they say is it just needs to be similar to what the SOAP API does. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> similar to the SOAP <laughs> API? And then so you look at the SOAP API. I'm like, well, first of all, that's it's a SOAP API, so everything's wrapped in all kinds of SOAP envelopes and you just mm. ridiculous WS star bullshit. Yeah. Um, and then so then you have to peel back that that onion several times until you get to the actual, I guess, S objects that are serialized. Yeah, um, which which is how I authenticate. Well, typically, how I authenticate the REST API. Actually, that's how I authenticate bulk API too. I just have a pared down. I, I don't even. I just create an XML syntax that has the bare minimum. It's just what I said. I did. It. So yeah, that's what no. I, I know. I'm okay. just saying. I but that's how I did it. Is I had to look at the SOAP API to look at the login spec, and I just trimmed it down to what was bare minimum. Created a simple string out of it. So that I could create it, so I wouldn't have to import a WSDL or anything just right. to get the login message. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I, I just have a, I just hand coded a, a simple SOAP message that logs them in for this login thing. But right. But I'm um, imagining you have to do something similar for the objects. Is no. So that's the only part of it. That SOAP is just getting the login. You have to. The only endpoint that can create the right kind of session ID you need, according to the bulk documentation, is the SOAP API. The SOAP API's login is what you need to get the right kind of session ID for this thing. And the weird thing is, is when you're making there's so many weird things about the bulk API that I that I didn't realize before. And it's just funny because I just finished a project where I did a lot of bulk API, but it was through some tooling that 
hit a lot of this stuff. It did a lot of this for me. I didn't even re- I didn't realize this. I had some magic, huh? Yep. Um, so, so first of all, like the serialization. By the way, I didn't finish saying. So I go to the soap documentation. I'm, I just want to like okay. I just, want, I just want to see examples of what the XML representation of S objects looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, they actually they don't they don't show that anywhere. They have code samples in, in like Java and C sharp for how to for how to call the SOAP API in those languages. But they don't, there's nothing that shows you examples that I could find. They're probably on the blog and stuff. I mean, there's examples out there on the internet, but in the, in the SOAP documentation, they don't say, oh, and here's what the XML serialization of the SOAP message will look like with, you know, the S objects and everything. It doesn't show that. So then you have to go to the, if, if you really want to know what Salesforce expects for this, uh, you have to, you have to, Basically, look at the WSDL, right, and all the data types the WSDL defines, and then that's you know as, as long as you know how to read um, XML schema, um, then you're golden, I guess. After that, after yeah. all that, um, okay. So the other weird thing about bulk is that you don't put the session ID in like a, in an authorization header like you do with like everything else on the internet. You put it in an X SFDC session header because it's not a token, it's not a bearer token. It's a session ID. It's a, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not OAuth, I guess. And but anyway, so this thing. So once you get to the point where you're creating jobs and creating batches and things like that, it's it's just XML. And it's not SOAP. It's just XML over HTTP. So yeah. So you you have a SOAP. You have an XML message that you send that you post with your X SFDC session thing um, that creates the job. Okay, and that gives you, I think, an XML result. Which you have to parse out the just job ID you just got because again this is not REST. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a, um, it doesn't have a like oh here's the link to the resource you just created with the three hundred two and all that stuff. It, it doesn't do that. This, that's why that's why this is not REST. So you have to parse out this XML message and get because it's buried in there somewhere is one of the things is, is a job ID. Okay, so you take that job ID, you form a new URL that allows you to create the batch for your job, right? Because a job contains mm-hmm. one or more batches if it's going right. to do anything. So then you post to, you know, this job slash job ID slash batch resource. Um, and here's what's weird about this. This is one way that, in the way that Salesforce break, is breaking the internet. The payload, when you post, is a post, by the way. The payload for that is, is your query. And because in my case, I'm, I'm creating a, my, my job type I created was, it was query. Okay. So the next thing you do when you create a batch is you have to post in your SQL query. And... Now, the job type here, or the, what do they call it, content type is CSV. Because when the mm-hmm. queries are done, I want CSV files. When you post it to create your batch, and, you, and your, the body of the post is just your text SQL query, you actually have to set your content, content type to text slash CSV. Which is funny, because my SQL query is not CSV. And that's what content type is. It's the content type of the request that you're right. creating. So it's weird. It's, that's broken. I'm not sending you text slash CSV. Right. I mean, my overall job type is text.csv, but that's not what the that's not what the content type header of HTTP tells you. It tells you what's in that HTML entity, what's in that body right. is text slash CSV, but that's not what it is. So that's wrong. <laughs> and you know what? I, that, the documentation said you had to do that. I didn't try removing that to see if it would work without that, but it works with it, so I'm just leaving it and because that's what the documentation says to do. Okay. All right, so now you've created a batch. Uh, then you have to hit, you have to keep adding these things onto, I mean, the URL is like getting so long now. On, on top of job slash job ID slash batch slash batch ID, now you can do a get on that, and that gets you info about the result. 
even though the result's not there yet. And that gets you a, oh, that gets you a, I, I think, oh, you know what? That that gives you, I think that's an XML result also. And there's a, there's one of the things in there is status, whether it's completed or not, because it might be queued yeah. or whatever, but it may not be completed. Once it's done, then you call the, I wonder if I gave them the wrong documentation. I'm looking at this. Uh, <laughs> gave your client the wrong documentation? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, they haven't used it yet. But anyway, then then you have to, um, you, 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 oh, yeah, so you, you add slash result onto the end of this, and that gives you um, an ID for the result ID. Then you take that result ID, you form yet a new, what am I, seventh now? Seventh URL you have to hit with result ID on the end of that, and that gets you your CSV. So they, you know, they're, here they are. They're hoping they can write have a simple script that just you know hits a endpoint and gets a CSV, and they've got to do this thing. And in each step in the process, they've got to write something to parse out the results of those. And sometimes they're XML, sometimes they're not. How often do they need it? It's probably it's got to. I mean, they'd like it to be like hourly. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Oh. So anyway, I know that was a long and painful story, but. It's like, and, and I'm hoping. I mean, if they're going to need it that frequently, they shouldn't be bulking their way of out of querying every record in the database. They should be a little more efficient with their the, the, with their so synchronization the, or the replication yeah, the reason, they're trying to accomplish. The, I'm I'm just trying to help them do what they think yeah. they want to do at this point. Yeah. Um. There's like six people on this IT team that are that are. No, I get it. Pretty specific. A pretty specific ask, and yeah. it seems like a reasonable ask too. Um, but someone piped in on the uh, on the Slack because I asked about this and said, "Hey, um, oh by the way, before I forget, to say part of the other part of the reason I'm using bulk because my requirement is it has to be more than, I mean, this is going to be like twenty thousand records, something like that. And first of all, the re- another thing that the report API, this fa- super fancy report API, two thousand records max, it'll return to you, and there's yeah. no way to get around that as far as I can tell. That makes sense." I, I guess uh, if I had that elaborate, I mean, that some people put a lot of work into the building that report API, and to limit it to two thousand records, that seems, I don't know, quite limiting. I mean, this is a this is a shared resource when you're talking about reporting and analytics, yeah. and it's people can do some stupid stupid stuff. So. Oh, but this 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 organization pays Salesforce <clears> hundreds <throat> of thousands of dollars a year. I mean, there's no way that no reason they shouldn't be able to report uh, something that's far smaller than the typical GIF people send each other. Animated GIF. So, (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell me about taxing Salesforce's resource. I do not feel sorry for them when it comes to that. No, we talked about it. You got to go through all the security layers and everything else, all that logic, just to get a record. It's about 20,000. It's about 20,000 records. Or that's what it needs to be able to. That's kind of the order of magnitude it needs needs to be able to support. I actually think the number's right now is about 15,000. So that rules some things out. Um, It might also rule out whatever that hacky URL you can hit to get a CSV through the UI. Probably that's CSV export because yeah. I don't know what I don't know what that thing is limited to. It's probably bound by the same limits. The other things I thought about were you can can't you still um, I don't know if I've ever actually done this, but can't you pull the jar file out of the um, the data loader and call it like on the command yeah. line and pa- yeah, you pass like a a lot of people a, do that. Yeah. You can you can automate the the data loader and it supports bulk API, so you just set everything up and you can call it directly. Um, I think you can even extend it to. Through some 
jar manipulation or something or adding a jar, adding a reference to a jar or something. And it'll, I think, sync to your database as well, or at least write it, pull it from your database or something. There was some database stuff that I remember seeing as as a advanced feature that I never got into because hmm. I'm not a Java guy. Interesting. I've never seen that. Um, but then now someone um, responded to me in Slack earlier and said, hey, did you think about, you know, SFDX now has a thing that has a lot of data functions on. One of them is you can just query. And I don't know what its limits are, but that that might be by far my shortest putt. Like, that would be great. And John is Googling or checking or something. No, yeah. I've got that. But yeah, I mean, if they can just run SF, you know, if I can give them a, I don't know, I can't remember how that, what you have to pass into that command, but SFDX, you know, whatever it is, force colon data colon query or something, um, and pass in a, just pass in a, a query and you get back, if it can handle, especially if it can handle, you know, more than 2,000 records. I mean, it needs to be able to again handle my, 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 the number of records here, but that would be, well, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, that's what MuleSauce is for, right? Although, so how does that work? <laughs> so wait a minute, though. If you were to automate that, like say on a server, so that something's going to be called every hour. MuleSoft. Can you, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm just trying to throw the line here. I'm trying to make sure $300,000 solution sure for a, makes it the for fastest to 10 billion <laughs> so as, a, I, as individually. I have a $200 problem that you're trying to throw a $300,000 solution at. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Benioff is only worth 6 million, 6 billion right now. We got to get him up to 10. I know, yeah. That's that's what he meant by 10 billion. Yeah, fastest to 10 billion. Can, I'm believe, sure that, can you believe that that they just, you know, recently hit 10 billion? I can't believe he's up to six billion in now. Revenue, Five wait, billion wait. was enough, and now he's six billion. I don't, and again, I, and he sells stock like crazy. I, I don't, I don't understand how Silicon Valley financial math and and how that relates to Wall Street. I don't understand none of, none of it makes any sense to me. But Salesforce should hit ten, just hit ten billion dollars in revenue. Uh, they've they're kind of a little barely profitable these days, but I mean, all these years of all these losses. But Benioff himself is almost worth as much as the amount of revenue that. Salesforce does every year. How, how does that work? God, I, I mean, it's just so. I mean, I know, I know how it's just what the stock is valued at, but it's 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 a it's crazy that that's how those numbers work. Yeah, good for him. Um, so yeah, I, I was thinking though on SFDX, can you can you just pass it like username and password kind of live there, or do you have to go through that whole force org auth and like? The the auth, manual yeah. thing. So once you had that set up, then it could, you could automate it, I guess. I guess. Okay. Something to look at that. That might be a good option for them. Yeah. Could be. I mean, I, I, I've is been, the data loader still open source? Yeah, I think so. Should be. Let's see. Salesforce data loader GitHub. I mean, it's not there. It's not open source, right? I should say force. Uh, sorry, force source available. It's not. Eh, maybe it is open source. Hey, I mean, last commit was two hours ago. Notes for data load of 45 and later. Java requirement. Yeah, shoot. Maybe I'll try that. That I just feel like with SFDX, there's there's stuff in in the environment, more stuff in the environment that's required. Some of which my I seem to think requires too much manual stuff. Like, you know, to or, to authorize an org, it pops open a browser window. I mean, what if this is on a headless server? Like, how do I do that? I mean. Yeah, um, I'd rather just be able to like because I'm, I'm pretty sure with the data loader, if you use if you just if you're just running the jar directly, like you can probably just pass in like your what are your username and password and your endpoint and yeah, you can and, figure and all your, that. Yeah, yeah. 
might be better. I mean, I've recommended it on number on a number of occasions just to just to automate it, just to be able to push and pull data. Not not using the bulk features, but certainly just to push and pull data. Yeah. I oh, mean, wow. I, for for most for most scenarios where they have some kind of orchestration tool or something, they just need a some kind of command line tool that can accept a bunch of commands and you configure a bunch of stuff and it produces the output. Um, so real-time follow-up, the same person says, I just tested it pulling account IDs in the sandbox and it pulled 100,000 records fairly quickly. Were you concerned about speed of the bulk? No, not speed. Speed's not a problem. Yeah. It's just, you know, I can't deal with a hard limit of like, you, you can only query 2,000 thing, two thousand records. Mm. So I gotta have something that does more than that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. I can't get to find the right tool for the yeah. job. All right, John, well, that's my content. Today. <laughs> what's, uh, what's on your... Well, you almost got into it a little bit um, of what I wanted to ask you, because I do have a question for you. <laughs> and this is around really JSON in general. I've been, I think I mentioned previously how I was looking at doing some automation with, with DX and some of the tooling stuff that I have. I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but I think I talked with you directly about it on how I wanted to configure that. Because uh, I didn't want to use a bunch of bash scripts and a bunch of environment variables and things. I kind of wanted to be able to kind of set up some kind of template that was in some kind of format that could be read in and then executed. So let's say I want to create a new sketch, scratch org for QA purposes or okay. for demo purposes. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to just kind of execute a command and have it read this file that had all the kind of everything it needed to know about that shape of it and be able to produce it. So I started getting into, well, what can I use to automate that? I still haven't decided on what I can use to automate that. It still seems like Bash is probably the least barrier to entry, but I'm like, well, what about Perl or PHP or something and reading in some JSON or something? <clears throat> and then I, I found um, this uh, project called Tommel, which seeks to be kind of that kind of configuration type file, but not JSON, in that it supports commenting. It's kind of like a key value pair this type technology. This is for SFDX? No, no, this okay. is just technology in general. It's tooling in general. Okay. So, you know, it doesn't matter what your project is. It doesn't have to be DX. But mm -hmm. it, it, and that's kind of the nice thing about DX in general is that I can layer on any kind of tooling I want. If I want to use SAS, I can just make sure that I pre-compile everything and it puts it in the right spot so that DX can recognize it. If I want to use TypeScript, same thing. I have to, I have to, well, TypeScript is kind of dangerous because you don't have the, um, the mappings to take your source code back to your um, source maps. Yeah, you don't have source maps mm -hmm. to be able to map everything back to where it was so that you can debug it. Yeah. So it's kind of dangerous to use TypeScript with Salesforce right now because um, there's no there's no inherent support. So there's for that. an option to embed the source map in the JavaScript file. Um, oh, really? Look at your TypeScript compiler. Yeah. Oh. Well, I don't I haven't fully bought on to the fact that I need TypeScript right now, but it's it's You may not. I I think TypeScript's gonna take over for to a large degree. I mean no, it's not hard to predict it already, it already it's very popular. Well no, it's, I mean TypeScript as a technology I think is is top and is winning that 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 uh area. Yeah. Just the JavaScript world, yeah. But I'm actually trying to reduce the amount of JavaScript that I have. I'm not sure if Lightning Web Components is going to change that, but I'm really trying to reduce the amount of JavaScript I have and the amount of certainly, well, code in general that I have. Certainly uh, uh Lightning Web Components reduces the amount of angle brackets that you have to push around. Does it? Yeah, because there's just a lot less of this like XML stuff where you're defining all the stuff in XML or whatever it is. 
you know, you de- every, everything you declare, every event type, everything you want to handle, and just all that crap. It's all XML. Whereas, I mean, I do like the constructs better of being able to import, or the idea of importing a library that I need and be able to use it versus sticking it into my page, like like an aura component. If I want to use the overlay library, if I want to register an, an event handler, I have to put that in the XML or yeah. in the content of it. And that's just, that's always struck LWC me as wrong. just uses JavaScript modules for that, right? Yeah. 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 So good. you're importing a bunch of stuff. But, um, Actually, <laughs> tangent, I created my first Lightning Web Component production. It's in my f- current release. Well, congratulations, John. And, uh, it, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration component because I wanted to be able to do some empty state. Guess what? It doesn't work. <laughs> I, I don't, okay, so what is, what is empty state? So you can have illustrations. So whenever content doesn't have any content rather than showing blank screen or just putting strictly text you can have an, a graphic mm-hmm. that displays and it represents the empty state of that so oh, it's kind of it's just more of a user experience type situation and, and it just doesn't work just because you threw something up no oh. it just doesn't work i think what it is is because i'm using that lightning web component inside an aura component and i'm thinking that the aura component still doesn't support um well i know it doesn't support svgs and um so there's a, there's this whole way to get SVGs to work with with Aura components. You basically have to create a renderer file, which is which you can have, and you you have to annotate your SVG markup with C data, so it just becomes C data, and then you have to go into JavaScript and on the re-render tell it to render itself with the data that's in that content body. Mm. It's kind of stupid and wrong the way it has to work, but apparently there's just no internal native support for it. So you have to do this kind of workaround to get the okay. browser to basically recognize it and inject it into your screen. Wow. I'm thinking that's the same problem I'm having now. Web Components isn't supposed to have that problem, but I'm using a web component inside of an Aura component, and I'm wondering if that's what's affecting it. Everything is, is it's a very simple component. It has two properties, one that lets you set the heading text and one that lets you tell it where in the static resource that SVG is. Yeah. Uh, I could have embedded the SVG, but that still didn't work anyways, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be an SVG. I'm not going to change the coloring or anything like that. I just need to be an image. Yeah. Um, a scalable image. So so SVG. A scalable scalable vector image, perhaps? A scalable vector graphic, to oh, be okay. specific. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it doesn't work. But I, it's in there. It's It's gone to production. I'm fine with it just showing the, the text and kind of gracefully failing for the most part. Um, but eventually I'll get that solved. But that was my first component. Um, but I did like the fact that I could just kind of import the things I needed when it came to referencing static resources. I just created a reference for a static, I guess a constant. I, I'm not sure. It's an import, but you kind of treat it like a constant for the reference. And then you can do a bunch of things. It was a bit confusing when it came to track and API. And I think that's going to make JavaScript files really wordy if I understand it correctly. So if you have a, you have two annotations that you can give to a property, you can you can have no annotation, which means it's private and nothing else can access it. You have an API annotation that lets it that means it's public facing, meaning someone could put your component on the screen and, and set that property. And then you have a track annotation, which says that someone can set that property, but it's if any changes happen to it, the screen knows to re-render that property. Okay. Yeah, they put some kind of event on it. Yeah. An observer. Right. So it kind of complicates things because you can't have both. You can't have an API annotation with a with a track annotation. Hmm. So you can't just list an, a variable or a property, I'm sorry, that says, okay, this is public and it's tracked. The only way to do that is, at least from my understanding at this point, is to have a private variable 
that is the tracked variable, and then you have a bunch of getter and setters for your API. API. Mm. But you only... <laughs> it's the other confusing part. You have a get... So there, there's, there's the concept of get and set in the framework. So you actually say get, and then you give it a method. I don't know, get my title. Okay. And then you tell it to return your, your private variable, right? Just like you would anything else, a getter. And then you have a setter. But you don't annotate the setter as an API because that name is already annotated. The getter is already annotated. So mm. if you try to annotate both, you get an error. Mm, okay. Which is really confusing and really sucks because I spent a good 20 minutes wondering why my components didn't compile. And is this, is this like LWC stuff? Yeah, this is LWC okay. stuff. <laughs> and so all, what, I'm, what I'm imagining is this, this basically a class like we typically have, and it's probably going to lead to a lot of other kind of... Because this doesn't sound like the, the kind of the nice modern web components I'm used to. It doesn't, does it? They, but, they, they had to go and weird it up, didn't they? <laughs> it got weird. <laughs> it, it, it got weird. And I don't know if this is just my, my current understanding of it, and maybe as I advance and become more elegant with it, I'll find better options for this. But essentially what I imagine happening is the typical bunch of private variables, a bunch of getter and setters that manipulate those private variables, and then a bunch of methods. And so it's just going to be this really long class of stuff. I mean, because it is, it is a class now. So, Of course, this is the segment of the show when people are yelling at us because they know the right thing to do, and we don't know what we're talking about. I've been tedious. <laughs> uh, this, is an op- this is an application that does, has no wire methods, nothing. It's a very simple... Comp- all it's designed to do is show an image, which is why it was perfect for my first production-ready Lightning Web component that doesn't work. But, uh, yeah, so it, it, I'm hoping that the SVG problem isn't me. There's nothing I can do specifically. I'm following the documentation of, of, of everything that anybody else says, and no one else is, seems to be reporting this issue that I'm having, so I don't know. Maybe someone can tell me if I'm doing it wrong, but either way, I mean, that, that's my first component. Well, it seemed like a good idea. Well, I mean... It will be a good idea once I get there, but once I transition everything to web components. John, this is um, African Dreamsicle. Oh, nice. I love Dreamsicles. <laughs> it's, got, it's a Goza with orange, tangerine, and vanilla. Well, it doesn't smell like orange and vanilla. It does not, does it? Oh, it doesn't taste like orange vanilla. I mean... It doesn't taste bad. It's just... When you think creamsicle, you're, you're, there's a very specific taste profile. Also, and I, you is, get a hint of it on the aftertaste, I think. This seems undercarbonated for a Goza also. Yeah. It's, in, yeah. it's not bad. Yeah. It's just not what it wants to... It's not what it was supposed to be. No. Anyways, pop in the stack. Back to JSON. I'm starting to, to, to be on the side of the fence that JSON is not a good language or format for configuration. It's not, which is why so many things of I mean YAML is still gotten is still growing in popularity. Um well Tommel is an answer to YAML because I think Tommel is that Tommel. Oh is it a, is it kind of is it kind of a take on YAML, I guess? Yeah. How it's you, like Tom's object how do you spell object it? markup language or something oh, like it, that. How do you spell it? T O M L. Look this up. Of course you have like protocol buffers if you're doing um that's more of like a, a, a serialization yeah, alternative. You know, because there's, I mean, you know, I guess in two broad buckets, there's two reasons to use JSON. One is as a data format to hold like settings and things like that, mm-hmm. and the other one is as a as a uh, serialization format. So you're sending data across between services across the wire, or whatever, and you, how you gonna 
you know, how are you going to send it? You can send Apex objects? Well, you're sending it to a Java system. You know, how's, you know, no, you have to send yeah. something. Um, and so it's a, it's a really common serialization format. But, and I think for serialization, it's, it's okay. Uh, it still has, it's actually got lots of, so many issues. I mean, just, if you ever um, want a, an exciting uh, day off, dig into the Jackson, which is the most, probably the most popular JSON serialization library. Mm-hmm. I'm just digging to Jackson. It's, it's freaking huge. I know this because I've had to write a lot of custom Jackson stuff, custom filters and serializers, all this kind of stuff. Um, and you, that really, if nothing else, will point out to you like how many issues there are with JSON. Yeah. I mean, just how many unspecified, ambiguous, different implementations. There's just so many problems. Yeah. When this, and that's one of the reasons why people like either do, I actually haven't, I'm not sure I've ever done BSON, but BSON is one. Um, there's um, a protocol buffer, is probably the most, that's the thing out of, of Google. Um, it's kind of uh, it's interesting. You ever work with protocol buffers? Mm-mm. So you have a you write it uh, like an IDL file, and you write it in, in kind of a. I think it might be it looks like a JavaScript looking format, but just defines the shape of the data, and then um, you just run a command and it spits out whatever you know bindings to to whatever language you're. Are you working with C sharp, Ruby, whatever? It spits out those files. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also an implementation. There's an implementation for all these different platforms and languages to actually do the serialization and deserialization. And it's uh, it just has you know 99.7% less or fewer issues, less or fewer in this case. I don't even know um, issues fewer. than JSON. And it's it's also much more. I mean, parsing wise and everything, it's a much higher performance. Yeah, I'm less concerned with with performance since just. A tooling mechanism and a config mechanism for me, but there were a few things I wanted to support. I wanted to support commenting. I wanted to be at least elegant enough to support arrays and things like that. And message pack, you ever heard of that? No. So I, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of of all these kind of different things that are available. But then I was like, okay, well, I can't, I can't just consume a Toml with a Bash or something. I got it now. I got to get up into like a scripting language and things like that. So it kind of like this one thing I wanted to solve. Was just to have a a little file, a template file that knew how to build us, that had everything I needed to know about building a certain scratch org, uh, turned into this whole tooling conversation in my head of well, what do I pick? What do I use? So how do I distribute? Tell me that? what what is you know using na- the native SFDX commands with the with like a config JSON file? What does that not get you? Well, I can't I can't really read a JSON file e- with a bash. No, I'm saying like you can. SFDX will consume your config.json, that org shape stuff. Yeah, but there's other things I need to happen. I need, okay. I need That's users to at. get created. Okay. I need uh, packages to get installed. I need um, certain features. and just, just things that have to happen beyond just the standard command line. Now, the command about, line's what important. About, what about that script that I wrote that does some of that type of stuff? Did you see that? You don't have a script that does some of that. Yeah. yeah. It's, in the, it's in the... You have a readme file that tells you what to push in, but yeah. Oh, I, I guess yeah. you could have glued those together, though. Yeah, I could have, yeah. but um, okay. but there's other things I need to like uh, the the app itself that we're talking about. That you know, I'm talking about is pretty simple. That I've got that memorized. It's 
<laughs> You're right. I didn't create that. I just wrote a readme for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, better than nothing. Well, I've, you know? I've modified that. I'm sure, yeah, that's good, though. Well, I haven't modified it. I've modified it in my head. Uh, uh, the readme uh, in my head has has an updated version that I haven't committed to the source yeah, code yet. But You're not being a good team member there. Well, I'm trying to fix that right now by doing <laughs> creating this tooling script because I don't want people to think. I want them to just configure this and, and do it. Yeah. And, and for myself, too. I just want to configure and do it. It's it's one of the few things that I, I don't mind forgetting. I don't mind forgetting how to create a freaking scratch org or having to remember to create, give it a name or give it an alias or, or you know, how many days out I need it to expire. Yeah. Which has been an issue. Yep. So <laughs> it bites me all the time. Yeah. So now I'm like, now I'm in search of a scripting technology. Like, well, what do I use? I don't, I don't, I'm not tied to anyone in particular. You I, mean, know? You can, I mean, I'm sure Bash will be fine. It's just it's, too many options. It's so universal. I mean, Bash is... It is, but including now, Windows. It's but everywhere. now I have to have other libraries to support it, parsing JSON or parsing TOML to be able to get that into the config and into environment variables and using a bunch of environment variables, which uh, I guess I could do. It's just not as elegant so then as use I whatever you're kind of, You mean, you know JavaScript, so do a little um, a little node. I know, a little node, a little node thing. A Again, node, yeah. that's the rabbit hole you go down. You, you, you go, okay, well, I need this. So I'll use node or I'll well, use... Well, node, uh, node is like the tool for like developer, like command on all these little tools and utilities and crap. I mean... Node yeah. is, is how everyone's building. I mean, there's, I guess it's just because it's gotten so easy to build and distribute those. And they've got, I mean, there's a there's a Node library for everything you want to do. Yeah. There's, you know, there's no stone unturned when it comes to NPM. They've got it. You've, if you can dream up some need, they've got it. They got you covered. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I'll go down that route. But uh, anyways, th- this, is even, this is even besides the point, the original point that I wanted to make, or at least the original question I wanted to make. Um, because I've, I've got to the point where I was like, JSON is not the answer for config. I might end up using it, but I don't think it's the answer for config. I just, I just don't think it's safe enough. I think there's too many things that could go wrong with it. I, I like simple value key pair paradigms because they're simple. And, you know... Properties I, file. Java properties file. I know. Or the, what's but, the, the Windows INI format. But I do want arrays. And arrays and key value pair means parsing strings. And now you're yeah. back into the realm of yeah. something could go wrong. And it's kind of it's kind of one of those iffy things. Yep. Um, but anyway, so that was, that was something that happened a while back when I was, it's not that long ago, but a while back. But then I came across a part in our current code base that was using, doing something that I've talked myself of doing numerous occasions. I've done this when I've gotten to architecting and designing something. I thought, I wonder if I could serialize JSON, stick that in a field and just parse it back out instead of having to create a bunch of child objects. I've talked myself out of doing that every freaking time. But it that exact situation exists in my current application. And it's it's almost validating because I realized the reason I talked myself out of it is it's such a brittle techno it's such it's so brittle to base your config on that or people base people are data stuffing on that. JSON everywhere every little nook and cranny they're stuffing JSON to be later used yeah but I just I think when I think back of the decision why I want to do it is because I thought I would be it would make it more flexible or it would allow me to be more flexible in terms of how I constructed that data. I wouldn't have to worry about objects, or I wouldn't have to worry about fields. wouldn't have to worry about security. I just need this data structure to exist, and I will control how it gets read, and I will control how it gets written. But the reality is, it creates this complexity, because as you version that structure, <laughs> now you have problem. to have this, you have this whole new problem, <laughs> yeah. Because now you have to know what version that that data structure is so that you can convert it later on, especially if you're advancing it and changing it and manipulating, which was the whole reason you did it. Yep. And it was because of that train of thought that I 
always talk myself out of it. I'm like, I'm just going to create the objects. I'm going to create the fields. It's going to be painful, but I'm going to do it. And it's it's always done well by me. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting to find this construct in code and realize, because it did break stuff, um, there's stuff in there that just doesn't work. It reaches a JSON serialization error, and that's the end of it. There's no troubleshooting it. Yeah. It's just doesn't tell me what failed, what's wrong with this data structure, just that it won't read it. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how if you have the same perspective on that, or if you have any different thoughts on it. But I just, I've always talked myself out of doing that, and I kind of feel validated after seeing it. Well, I mean, <clears throat> serialization is fraught with all kinds of issues like that. You know, just because you can serialize it today, you know, can something else deserialize it? Can it deserialize it if it has a different version of the of the schema? How do you know if you've got a different version? I mean, there's there's solutions to these things. I mean, in the in the kind of static or uh, what the thing you see the most often, like in just the Java example, is there's um anything that's intended to be serializable, um, which is also supposed to implement a marker interface called serializable. But there's a you have a like I think it's a private private static uh, long integer field called something like serial version ID or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can set it to anything really. A lot of times people just do a random, they either do one, you'll see one a lot, or just some crazy long random number. It's a, it's a long, so it can be, you know, super, or actually maybe bigger than long. I can't remember what it is now. Um, but some incredibly, if you do, if you pick a random number, you're, no, you're, not, you're never going to have a, you're never going to accidentally pick the random, you know, it's like a UUID almost. Yeah. <clears throat> um, GUID, is that there? Yeah. Um, and so what happens is that value gets serialized along with all the data. That version, and then anytime you change the format, in this case it's Java, so change that class in a way that makes it incompatible to deserialize. You're supposed to change that version number, and there. And so going forward, anything that gets serialized from that class gets that new version number, and the thing that's deserializing can check to see at least can check to see, All right? And fail it can fail fast instead of you getting instead instead of like your app corrupting itself for a long time and you not knowing right. and all your data's wrong and people have made bad decisions and you've <laughs> sent ships to the wrong part of the oceans and <laughs> right <laughs> well ideally you'd want you'd want your code to, to be elegant enough to know what version it needs to serialize and pick the right class for that and deserialize based on oh you're that. talking about changing the the actual like a different class name every time you change the version that doesn't have, it could be an interface with a factory in front of it I mean well so, I mean that's basically what this does right I mean the, it, but it's it's handled for you at a at a more of a, a plumbing level. Like right. application code doesn't is not yeah. checking versions. Right. But when you got to de- when an application when application code goes to deserialize something, if it's a different version, if it's an incompatible version, you will get a the the plumbing will throw in a serialization exception to you that you can at least say, well, we we at least we know we need to stop right now and figure this out. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, to that perspective, if you were creating that kind of construct, I would imagine that you would have some kind of instance generator that would say, what version do I need to create? It would go and grab the right class, and it would still serialize it. You, you, hopefully, it would be backwards compatible. So your old data structure would still work. Now, on save, it might use the new format and, and rev that data structure. But when it's reading, it should always be able to read whatever previous versions you had, unless it's a true error. Like someone manipulated that file or that so you're, data So directly. you're saying that you're, you're, you only change the, f- the format in a way that it's always... Is that forwards compatible or backwards compatible? Whichever one it is. Yeah. Okay. Like there would always so be you some would, construct. So you wouldn't rename a field or remove fields or whatever. Like you're. No, just that you would. 
a ver- the version number would always exist in that data in the same place always. Oh, yes. And yeah. that way you could always look for that and determine what type of That's class. That's like the one known thing is that yeah. field will be called that name right. and you can always check it. Right. Yeah. And uh, ideally have a fixed point starting start end point for it. So you can just grab that chunk from, from the data stream, read it, figure out what you need to do, and then pass the rest of it for serialization. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. But... um. That takes a lot of forward thinking. That takes a lot yes. of plumbing because now you have to build interfaces. You got to build a factory, and then it's how to, to generate those instances for you. So there's a lot and, of plumbing that goes along can, with you it. You can try to solve all that, and you'll think you have. And 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 by the way, only then can you actually start to solve your actual business problems. Right. <laughs> and then after you do that, then you'll realize all the stuff you got wrong creating all your own plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I've always talked myself out of doing this. Yeah. But I saw it, and I was like, I yeah. This is why and, I don't do that. Exactly. And surely, I mean, someone else has solved that problem. Yeah. I don't need to be solving this problem. I'm not... Yeah, you know. but I mean, there's libraries. I mean, I'm sure you can find a library. I'm sure you can find an Apex open source project. But the bottom line is, what is it going to cost me to have another object in the system, a child object that has this well, stuff it's in Apex. there? I mean, how do you, again, how do, here's the whole problem with Apex things is, how do you specify your dependencies? How do you know what version of the thing you have? How do you... How do you put it in code? I mean, again, it's, with Apex, you just everyone just copies in. They just copy in code into their into the repository. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. It's yeah. it's the what is the opposite of software engineering? That's whatever Apex is. Whatever that is, <laughs> not Apex the language, but the whole how you work with dependencies, dependent yeah. you know, code dependencies. There's no binaries. There's no, and I mean. I guess app exchange, I guess packages are kind of kind of binaries in a way, but I mean still um, no, they're still they're still but you know everyone who's got all these all these apex things in their github, how do, what do you do with it? I mean you you literally I mean there's usually a couple things you can do. one sometimes they'll have this, oh, this is such an awesome. you can click here and install this in your org. so it just it just dumps its code into your org and now you, now it's up to you. I mean how how do you how do you get bug fixes to that code? Um, how do you, I mean, when you, when people, you know, are, you know, releasing new versions or pull requests for it or everything, I mean, how are you getting new versions? How are you getting notified? How do you know that you got the right version? When you install other code that depends on this code, does yeah. it, is it depending on the same version? Do you even know? You don't know. There's no, you don't know. You just don't know. This is, this is all a huge problem. And it, it really I, limits how I, we I do, do see a gap Salesforce in, development. I do see a gap in the kind of the app exchange where I don't think there's a way for us to notify customers that we have a new version. Unless I'm missing it, I mean, you can you can create a patch and you can push patches, but I don't think there's a way to say, "Hey, I've got this new version, install it." I think it's always been left to external ways of doing that. Meaning, I, like I, know, I know my this, customer yeah. list, and I can email everyone and say, "Hey, there's a new version. Here's the release notes." So it's, for the patches, you can push those automatically, right? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, if they if there's something that yeah, how do they? If it's not a patch, if it's like a yeah, if it's a new release, yeah. yeah. Um, is there not a? Is there not a? Like when you go into setup, is there? An, I think there's a. I swear there's like a little one of these little things that we. It's almost like it almost feels like an ad, which is why everyone ignores them. Um, but that it's like one of the little notifications in setup that you see if you're an admin is, hey, these you know here's packages with new versions. I could be wrong, but I swear it's. I, I remember seeing that, and <sighs> as long as I've been working with packages, I don't remember seeing that. I I, I had to. So do what it. do you do? Do you have to go to the app exchange, and like just install, or is there, or just know that there's a new version? I mean, but then what do you do? How do you get it? Well, you get the URL for it. Oh, you're just talking about if it's like a private thing? I mean, because... No. I mean, 
Well, not everything. I mean, another way you get is you go to the App Exchange and you click install this into my org, and then it's going to upgrade you to that new version. Yeah, I mean that's one way to do it. But how did I get notified it's, of it? Like, so I'll take HubSpot for an example. I was on a really old version of HubSpot. I actually had to upgrade to a newer version of HubSpot before upgrading to the latest version of HubSpot, which is crazy that we yeah, have to do that. But that's what had to be done. God, that's how Windows Update still works. Don't get me started. I had to fire up my VM the other day, and it, <laughs> I, I took me half a day to get my Windows patched. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, writing. Writing code that knows how to upgrade legacy code to the new code or even data structures is a pain in the butt. I guess and it's so. a lot of plumbing, but I guess it's easier just to say upgrade to this known anti this known point in time, and then we'll upgrade it to you to the next major version, yeah. um, which is what happened. But I was on their site, and their site was giving me instructions on how to do that. It was actually in the admin tools as part of the integration part of getting HubSpot connected to Salesforce. It told me you're in an older version. First, upgrade to this version. Here's the URL. Did that process. Okay. So that just gave you the direct link to it. Right, yeah. right. So, but there was nothing in the app itself that said, hey, this is a really old version. Please right. upgrade because yeah. it's going to cause you issues. I mean, I guess you, I guess, I guess apps could, because um, I don't think there's any like platform call to do the API call, but I mean, I guess uh, if you were, if you are an ISV, you could host somewhere some API that returns like whatever the current version is. And so you can just have your app, you know, every so often just make a call out, similar like how Sparkle and some of these other frameworks do it. Um, um, and it just, and they, they'll make the call out and just to the to home and say, hey, what's the current, what's the latest version? Oh, it's newer? Okay, I'll notify the user then. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of like any other app store that out there that has a section for new releases or updates and it flags the things you have installed and says, there's an update yeah. for it. Would you mm-hmm. like to install it? Here's the release notes. There's no mechanism that I can see that's that easy and intuitive for an admin to go, yeah, I'm going to install that. Yeah, that's that's... Interesting, because it. I mean, that doesn't seem like a that doesn't seem like a hard problem to solve. I mean, you just it just makes a you know every twenty four hours or so whatever it makes a call to see. Yeah, it passes in all the versions it has, and you get a result. Ba- you get a response back about what all the new versions are that are different or whatever, and you just show the user. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Well, so just to, just to, for anyone if anyone from Salesforce is listening, John and John and I are available for. <laughs> Part-time consulting, moonlighting on this topic. <laughs> I'm we'll sure this solve this. I'm sure this is yeah. something that's on their radar. That uh, I, well. I mean, as much as Benioff talks about the App Store and giving the App Store its name or yeah. handing over the name of the mm-hmm. App Store to to Steve Jobs, you think he would notice that feature that we don't have a way of notifying users that we have a new app and would you like to install it? Yeah, you know. Speaking of Steve Jobs, did you see that he's alive and well in Libya or wherever it is? Is he? I did not. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, I swear, his doppelganger though. He does have a doppelganger, and the yeah. guy, it's like somewhere. I think it was Libya, somewhere in the Middle East, or was that North Africa? Um, but yeah, the guy's just sitting there like at a cafe, and it's there's it's a picture from the side, and it looks identical to Steve Jobs. It's crazy. Was he wearing a turtleneck? No, he's wearing just like. No, then it wasn't Steve garb. Jobs. Yeah, it exactly. wasn't Steve Jobs. But he's got to be incognito. Yeah, unless he's always wearing that same outfit. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a I think he copied that from Einstein. Hmm. Einstein always wore the same outfit. He didn't want to waste any at least what I heard and understood from whatever I read some time ago that he would wear the same thing. He had like so he didn't have to worry about what the to same wear, outfits. Right? Yeah, he yeah. would just put it on. He wouldn't have to worry waste any kind of brain energy on what to wear. That's what Steve Jobs did. Yeah. Blue jeans and a black turtleneck, right? Yeah. Every day. And uh, sneakers. Yep. Well, my that's, I'm almost as bad. My summer outfit is khaki shorts and a t-shirt. 
Usually solid, but I'll do the yeah. little every once in a while. The little. I'm always sporting the Good Dacer shirt as much yeah. as I can. Yeah. Anyway, um, all right, John. Yeah, let's let's close it up yeah. so I can get home on time. Yep. And we can get to the topic with Sean. Cool. The conversation with Sean. The conversation with Sean. Yep. Um, all right. So before we close, um, if you're not in the Slack, you know the drill. You've heard it. Why aren't you doing it? GoodDacerPodcast.com. Click on community. Put your email address in. John will add you. Uh, send us email at info at goodday.podcast.com if you have questions that you want us to talk about or topics or anything else, just feedback you've got for us. Share us on the socials, as John likes to call them. Let's get tell your friends. That's how this thing. That's how this thing works. You really got to tell your friends and your coworkers. And in a, just like a few seconds here, you're going to hear the part two of my conversation with Sean McLaughlin of Salesforce.com. Are they still Salesforce.com or is it just Salesforce? I think it's just Salesforce. They span all top-level domains. They're no longer constrained to .com. <laughs> you know that name causes confusion? Because in my world, we are Sales Space Force. Here I thought we were ending the show. but <laughs> we, I, I am Sales Space Force, not Sales Force. Oh, 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 gosh. That's a whole other thing, I know. <laughs> and, you know, they probably created that name before they ever did a thing with Salesforce.com, right? So they probably. they didn't foresee this, and they yeah. would have had no reason to. Well, sales, yeah. sales Space Force is a thing. It's, it's, it's a, a Salesforce. It's a Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> or if people that annoy me that don't ever properly spell and capitalize Salesforce correctly will do Sales Space Force or capital S. They'll, they'll make it one word, but capital S and capital F, which really annoys me. San Francisco? <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's just like, they spell Salesforce, but the know, F is capitalized. It's just, it's, it looks like you're trying to say it's San Francisco, but I guess. anyways. Um, except you spell the world Salesforce. <laughs> anyway. Okay, John. Well, and to that, I say thanks for the beer, and good day, sir. You're welcome. You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! How has DX changed your, how you work? Ooh. Um, turn it upside down. Okay. Um, and you saw some of this in the extracurricular mm-hmm. session. Um, but yeah, it used to be, uh, you know, people would make things for Dreamforce or whatever, and we would take them to all the different world tour events and stuff. And um, part of my job was when I first started was, hey, here's this demo they got built. Let's clone it and create copies of it and like cut and paste those credentials into a spreadsheet for each event, you know? Um, and it was like trial force and like golden copy kind of approach to these things or like a shared org where anyone that starts being like, hey, look how easy it is to modify these objects and set up, you know. And then the next week, someone else is doing that event somewhere else and they're like, hey, the org's broken, right? (laughs) Um, So shared demo orgs are a anti-pattern is what I learned really on, early on. Um, That's that's actually a good tip. Yeah, so DX lets us spin up um, scratch orgs based on source that will always look exactly like I want them to look with the data and with the, you know, current Features, setup. data, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, and then, you know, we built this deployer thing that, you know, click button and you get an org and you can just log in and do it. Um, and so, I mean, it's predictable. Now I just give people the link. I'm like, here's a link where all these demos live. <clears throat> um, if you need them, go get it. And then, like, if you're working a booth, you know, a lot of times you'd be like, okay, let me set up, let me show you how easy it is to set up Heroku Connect. And then after that, you talk to that person, you get to undo that work so that you could then show it again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, versus and and or like especially if you do stuff in uh, in schema and you create like a new tab or a process builder, you have to go clean that stuff out to show the next person. There's like reset steps mm-hmm. between demos, um, and so now it's just like, hey, just throw away the whole org, click the button, get a new one, and then you could start from there. Yep. Right. 
Um, it's also let us do, we can do a lot of this hands-on workshops. That's what I'm actually in town doing tomorrow for Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have, um, I don't know, we'll probably give away 400 orgs um, that are sort of set up in these little um, 30 to 45 minute workshop sessions that we do. And it's just nice to be able to give those out at scale. And we don't we don't know who you are. You don't have to fill out a form. You just sit down and click a button and then you're in it. Yeah. And you can see whatever it is, you know, test drive whatever we want you to play with. And then And then these are <clears throat> typical scratch words, they self-destruct in 30 days or whatever. Uh workshop orgs I set to one day. Okay. So and they know that going in. Obviously. Yeah, it'll it'll say that on the okay. list. Um a lot of demos that we use for SEs, I'll I'll leave on for 30. Okay. Because they may like prep something that they're gonna do next week. And they may want to grab it and like put their customer's logo in it and do some branding things or maybe some other things to it. Yep. Um, so we want those to be a little longer lived. But yeah, workshop works. No one's going to come back the next day. If they want to, they just grab another one. Did you hear, um, I think it was last week, John and I were talking about this, but I I was testing some code in a brand new developer org I spun up through our environment hub. And I was also testing it against um, a scratch org, which should have been really similar. But it turns out, and let me know if, what you're, if you got time. No, just checking notifications. Um, um, I, I hate that about the Apple Watch because I always feel like I'm being rude when with people. I'm like, oh, no, I wasn't looking at the time, I promise. You know, yeah, just, I, I don't know what time. Sure, just making yeah. sure my wife's not texting me or whatever, you know? Exactly. I, I know what time. I, don't have, I have no idea what time it is, but I do know that nothing urgent's on yeah. fire. Um, but uh, what, was, what was I running up against? It was um, different features being able, which is, which is not a big deal. But what, what was surprising was... Um, it was the scratch rug, I think, like didn't have this old feature that's, I think, always, almost always enabled now. Um, it was enhanced folder sharing for reports mm -hmm. and dashboards. And I, I found it in the, in, in help in, in the, like it was a help article. And it said, oh, this has been, this is default on in every org since 2013. Um, it says that in the help document. Hmm. Um, but if you want it, if you need to turn it on or off, I guess, you actually do have to go into Classic because it doesn't even show up in Lightning Setup anymore. Interesting. Is there a Scratch Org definition file feature that turns that on? I don't know. Okay. Um, and I also, I actually can't remember whether it was the Developer Org or the Scratch Org that didn't have this turned on. Okay. But it's like, it was so weird. And then also, I guess, Scratch Orgs don't come with all this, like, cruft that other, like, a, if you spin up a Developer Org, whether it's through the Salesforce's sign-up site, or whether it's your, like, your environment hub, does come with like some random default records and some random like custom fields and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and what I've noticed is, because um, I've been doing some contribution to some open source projects, is a lot, because like a lot of this, so this one particular project, part of their integration test was um, they push, um, they have like metadata in, in the project, and you push that to your org, and then it can run integration tests against that org. But it also depends on some of these default custom fields and even records that come in. Like if mm -hmm. you go spin up a developer org through, what is it, developer.salesforce.com yeah. that comes with that stuff. Pyramid construction. And it depends on that. Yeah. But your scratch org is not going to have that stuff. It can if you say has sample data true. Is that what it is? In okay. your scratch org config. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what I did was actually I submitted a pull request to not depend on any of that default stuff. I think that was the right thing to do personally. But yeah. yeah. And actually what I did was I added, um, I added that what they were because it wasn't in the metadata that that was in the it was in the project, it just assumed that it was already there in your right. org, and I just added it to the metadata of the org and sent that up as a pull request, so that so that if you're and I tested it against the scratch org to make sure it, it worked. And yeah, that that list is getting pretty large. Um, since since DX came out, there's sort of been this, um, you know, I mean, you, you talk about it on the show all the time. Here's all the things you can't do in the metadata API. 
Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like some feature that if you need that feature, you have to go into setup and click it yeah. on. Right. And so that list is drastically shrinking. Yes. Really yeah. quickly. Yeah. And, I, and, and Salesforce publishes that list too, which, which I like. I mean, at least because you just, it, it's helpful to know if you don't have that list, um, then it's, you don't know what to look for. You don't know like, okay, what's the gotcha here? But yeah. they, they have that list of, of, yeah, and they've dramatically improved. I, I think my, the thing with the metadata API is just the things that are implemented, it's just some of them are implemented in a way that they're really hard to work with. And and that, that's a tough problem. And it's also, this is, John always nails me on this, it's like a one percenter problem. And I, and I know it. But I feel like the one percent that have these problems, like, I mean, I feel like we're important people. You know, yeah. we're trying to solve big problems, you know. Yeah. And I think I think DX is changing. DX is making that a five percenter problem or something like that. I, I agree, yeah. Um, it's, so, it's, it's shedding some, you know, it's, yes. uh, it's like the, the cleansing... Um, power of sunlight, right on on on, on these things. Yep, and and also, you know, just to kind of talk a little bit about internal Salesforce things. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you're a product team, and you're going to ship a new feature, and you don't quite understand why metadata API support is a big. You know, like you were talking about your backlog and stuff like that. Why would I prioritize this feature above something else? And and so for a while, it was like, well, dev tooling and stuff like that. Um, once it you, sounds so esoteric, doesn't it? It's yeah, like, it's like, but <laughs> you know, once once you explain to a you know to a product team that you're like, okay, there's this many customers that are doing CI/CD, and if you don't support that metadata API thing, these are all the customers, and they tend to be larger customers, they're not, more sophisticated. Not use your product. They can't use your product. <laughs> you know, they they won't even they won't even go there because they won't back out of that CID. Once they've got that, once they've committed to that model, you know, they're like, oh well, I can't use that feature yet, right? And as that SFDX user base grows in terms of people that are doing more and more things with it and more and more ISVs are using it and stuff like that. And then it becomes easier to justify the importance, the priority of having yeah, supporting yeah. all those features, right? Um, so that, that's something that just, it takes a little bit of time and it's like a chicken egg thing at first. Sure. And I, I think, I mean, I feel like DX has, and I, I really, um, I mean, DX is to me, and I, when I say DX, I mean like Salesforce is, you know, the, the, that this program, right, that they started, and I don't know if Wade was like, it was was he the one that started, or he was hired for this specific purpose? Yeah, okay. Um, but to me, it's it's not just about the tooling they're creating and whatever. It's it's about changing the mindset, changing, uh, bringing awareness, right? Changing the com- changing the complexion a little bit of um, of Salesforce. I mean, in terms of it's it's got to be something that eventually you know, reaches all areas of Salesforce. Like, I mean, again, every, any product team, any feature team, I mean, they've got to, they've got to understand why this is important. And I, I think probably just historically, it's like, it, it hasn't really been that important. I mean, um, but it's becoming more important and they, it becomes, an, I mean, Salesforce has what, 40,000 people. It's a, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to communicate in a 10 person company. I, I can tell you, <laughs> um, I can't imagine communicating amongst a 40,000 employee company. And, and trying to, it becomes, you have to sell your message and in internal communications. And it's like, these are things are important and you guys need to care about this and here's why. And, you know, we're changing how things are done. And, you know, you're going to have important customers that care about this. And just, yeah, you know, I think, so they think about that. Because if it's, here's the thing, if the metadata of aspect of a new feature is an afterthought, it's just, it's not, it's probably not going to turn out well. Yeah, so the good thing is, um, yes, that communication and, you know, Helping people understand why it's important is is a thing. Um, the other thing that you do when you get into larger projects and and big systems like what we're dealing with is you make it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing. 
you know, so if, I mean, if you're a developer, you're like, oh, someone already wrote the linting rules. I'm just doing with them. Right. And so what, what we've done now is make it, uh, pretty hard to ship something without that support. Yeah, no, that's good. And that's, pretty easy to ship with it. I think the Japanese call that poke yoke. Yes, make it easy to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and so the thing that you're going to see now is not new features shipping without it, is you're going to see some things that have been around for a while that someone is not actively developing on oh, yeah. that now it's sort of like, okay, you need to go back in that thing you made three years ago we need you to prioritize yeah. getting something yep. in it because customers, lots of customers might be using it and then they can't CICD it, right? Um, so th- that's the one that's a little bit more of a challenge because now you have to make someone go back in time yeah, and finish I, something. I mean, a lot of these features, they've got to be on somewhat autopilot. I mean, there was a, f- a team was formed to build this thing. They built it, got some feedback, probably made some enhancements, but at some point it it works, mm-hmm. right? And so people move on to other teams and form other Teams for other other features, and that's like okay, someone now we need to do something on this feature. Now, who do we? Who's and, still around? Who's still around that built this thing? You know, <laughs> and those may be different skill sets too. Yes, yeah, true. Oh, very much. And so. so, by making this sort of a corporate wide initiative, um, then it becomes you know maybe like hey, no one owns this anymore, no one's working on it, and you're like okay, great. Well, we still need to solve it, so someone will get assigned to yeah. you know to to make that happen. And you know, if it's a if it's a feature, I mean, the type of skills that it takes to get things set up in the metadata API may be different than someone actually built the feature. Sure. You know, so there, anyway, there's, there's different things there. Um, and I mean, the good thing is DX got it all the attention that it needs and also like the push to solve these things and, you know, make it self-documenting. So you, like you said, you can see, oh, this feature, I can push, pull it. I can metadata deploy it. I can package one it. I can use second generation packages on it. I can, you know, um, kind of run across that list of capabilities that and, matrix. And the, when you say it's self-document, is that is that so it's available via like an API that describes right what you can do with its metadata. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um yeah and there's a there's a metadata coverage page. Okay. This like here's the metadata coverage page for uh general Salesforce mm-hmm. by version. So what's what's metadata coverage in version 47? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually really cool. It also lists the known issues. And so if you're like, okay, what are the known issues with deploying custom objects? Oh, great. Source tracking works on custom objects, but it doesn't work on, you know, where you go in and say history tracking yeah. on an object. Yeah. That doesn't push-pull properly. Okay. You'll have to go manually modify okay. it in the XML. That's you what know. I was talking about. Is, is if you know, you know, it's it's like the only thing worse than your known unknowns is your unknown unknowns, yes. right? <laughs> yep. Or in that case, I guess those are known, those are just known problems. Um yeah. We've we, we yeah. People report but, them, but it's good. But, them, yeah. but knowing, but I mean, that's the point. It's like I w- I'd rather know them so that we can put together a plan around it. Here's a workaround. Yep. You know, just, just go change it from false to true in the metadata. You know, just write write a little bit of XML. Okay, great. Yeah. Now you can push pull that right. Yeah. Um, and the other the other big list is just here's all the things that you can do in setup that you can't do through the API. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because that's that's the other large bucket of things is like what's metadata supported, but also what's configurable that yep. normally would go through setup. And I wonder, I don't, I don't know if, you know, it's one of those things I wonder if Salesforce is working on, but if you're familiar with like the, um, like AWS is like their cloud formation API, or um, I prefer the the a Terra, um, Terraform. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? There is a thing called Terraform that sets up a bunch of infrastructure yes. based on a recipe. And, yep. And it's, 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 it's basically like a third party way to do that. Um, for actually, Terraform I think applies to more than just AWS. Yes. But, so AWS has cloud formation, and it's it's okay. I, it's fine. I just think I think Terraform's a little better. Um, but there, it's a Terraform is is a declarative way to say 
this is what my infrastructure should look like. And whenever you make changes to it, so you deploy that to AWS and AWS spins up all these things, your load balancers, your app servers, your databases, all these things, right? Yep, make it so. Yep, make it so. And then um, later you might um, add uh, a new app server and remove a message queue or something like that, right? Or mess- a message instance, something. And then you deploy that and... Database looks at that and says, okay, we here's what's different. We need to... So every time you're, you're seeing a declarative of what the state of the th- system should be, and then AWS figures out what to go change to do that. That would be a great model. Because right now, it's it's imperative. It's a little bit... It's, it's somewhat declarative, but sometimes it's imperative. Like, you have to say, I need you to delete this. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know, but and crafting your destructive changes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so it's a combination of because a lot of it's declarative. I mean, if you think about most most of the metadata XML is it's just declarative. It's just this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of and for a lot of cases, it works just fine. Salesforce will create things if it's missing. If they're already there, it will update them. Um, a lot of cases that just works, but there's just all these edge cases where you have to do declare, you have to do is it like imperative? I guess you have to tell it, okay. Delete this. Rename this, delete this, and then, and maybe in the middle of that process, the my normal, like, you know, you got post and pre, and it's, it, and then how do you, how do you commit that to version control? Because maybe someone else's org doesn't have that thing that needs to be deleted. And, and that's, so that's kind of the problem we're, we're still dealing with. It's just that, that model. Yeah. I think packages are probably the 50 50 halfway to yeah. getting to where you want right. to go, where, you know, I have version six installed when I, in version, when I install 6.1 you know, feature X is no longer there, that gets deleted as long as you deploy that with the correct flag. Yeah. And and so what we what we can't do um, is is really say, I'm going to take the inventory of the entire org and delete stuff. Because you're like, if you start deleting things that have data in them that have processes associated exactly. with them, right? Uh, it's, it, and I totally acknowledge it's a, such a unique and more difficult problem for Salesforce than it is for like AWS, yeah. as an example. And that's where having kind of a discrete package with a discrete set of components and boundaries on it, so that when I redeploy that same package with slightly diff- more stuff in it and two things removed, then it looks more like your Terraform thing. But it, it it's not like, go through my entire org and anything I didn't, anything I forgot to mention, go ahead and destroy it. Basically, yes, because yeah, that's yeah. a dangerous that's what it thing. Does. Right? Yeah. So what's what's nice in the package is, hey, with within this little box, anything that I didn't mention, I really mean for you to destroy. Mm-hmm. But I don't mean to look across my whole org. Oh, yes, that's because yeah. because most customers would not be comfortable with yep. that. And then there's also the issue of, well, I didn't include this because it wasn't in metadata API version 46. But now that 47 is out, well, there is this thing. Well, if you didn't say so. Do you mean for us to delete it now? Yeah, you know. Yeah. So there's there's stuff associated with that too. Um, so that like it's just it's just not quite as safe as yeah. it should be. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, but yeah, packages will give you some of what you're looking for, where you can deploy those things incrementally, and then you'd be like, oh, mm, can I, I really want to go back to 6.0? You know, 6.1. I didn't like something about it. Yep. Just install 6.0. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and especially with those. Uh, not the managed packages, but the unlocked packages, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, where you as a customer are managing your own stuff. Um, with ISVs, it's a little bit different because you you make something global, you know, you still can't break people's stuff by sure. removing something and, global. And, and, that, and that's that's what, uh, part of what makes this, uh, and again, I acknowledge, it's such a more difficult problem with Salesforce is because as an ISV or, or anyone creating packages, pushing packages out, um, it, for anything that's global, I mean, or or, and that's, and then for office, obviously, I mean, you know, custom objects and and custom fields. I mean, those are they they just are global. There's no 
access yeah. modifier visibility. They're they're all global, but, but obviously for any any code that's you mark as global or whatever, I mean, you have to assume people are forming dependencies on those, and so you can't just remove those from your metadata and expect Salesforce to, to delete those. Yep. Um, I mean, because if they did, you know, you'd probably have uh, you'd have some people. customer who was <laughs> yes. using it. Right. Um, so but, yeah, it, this is a this is a challenging problem, and I, I you know, I, and again, I know there's you know some crack team of amazingly smart people at Salesforce that are that are just always working on this and thinking about it and whatever and, and you know obviously doing whatever's possible. But yeah, I mean, as much as we could get to some kind of declarative like here's like a static model of what it should look like now, go. Because yeah. I can check that into version control. Right. And anyone can deploy, deploy that to their org no matter what state it's in. Yep. And I think packages will give you something close enough to that that you'll be like, this is what I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think for for ISVs, they've lived with that world for a while with some problems. And so second generation packaging makes that a little simpler. For customers, that's almost a new thing. Like there wasn't really packages yeah. for customers right. other than creating a package XML and using that as a cluster of things. Yeah. Um, and so I think for customers, that's a fairly new thing to be experimenting with and kind of getting the feel for. And then, you know, of course, there's the stuff that's not supported in packaging. It's just not deployable yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, there's kind of all those problems being solved at the same time. And what you'll find is you'll be like, okay, this one project totally fits within the capabilities of packaging and DX. Let's go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. This other one has this these two things that aren't supported yet. So don't do that first. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and I've I've done a, quite a few packages and with all this, you know, because I'll have different demos. We sort of have like a fictitious car company we use for some of our demos. And there's one package that just contains their lightning themes. And there's another package that contains a whole bunch of their standard objects. And so a lot of the demos we build install those two packages as part of its script. Okay. And then they may be you may extend those objects and create a few more fields, or you may do a few other things specific to that demo. Uh, but that way, if I go add some fields to the base package or I go change their branding and update it and make it slightly nicer, every org is now receiving that latest thing. Yeah. You know, which is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I guess that's maybe similar, but I, I really, th- I know people argue with me because they've had ter- terrible exp- experiences with, um, with NPM or Maven or something else. But I mean, and I'm not necessarily asking for that, but s- we really need some type of, um, Dependency management and, and resolution system type of thing where you can you can deploy your code and you say, hey, this is what this depends on. Because right now there's still a ton of copying, pasting in classes, utility classes or things you need, or going to someone's GitHub and downloading and just copying that yep. into your source code. And that's just and and it's the problem is that becomes it's locks, it kind of get locked in, it gets locked in your code base, and then there's no process for well, what happens when that person fixes some bugs? How do you get those in? Like you copy and paste again, or like, mm-hmm. you know. So there's that would that would be really cool within your uh, SFDX project config file. You will like when you create a package, there is this place where you can declare your dependencies. Yeah. You just kind of list those package versions in order. Mm-hmm. If they're your packages, you know stuff that you manage within the same hub, uh, you can list them by alias, and that helps a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of like saying, you know, npm. Hard equals three point four point two. Right. You right. know, mm-hmm. um, we don't we don't have the concepts of of the tildes and the carrots and and some of those more nuanced fuzzy, things. That's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can go up a you can go up a minor version, but mm-hmm. don't go up a major. Yeah. You know, some of that stuff. Um, the other thing that the npm supports really well, and, and actually, I'm an npm fan. I I, I, I consider it a miracle I, of the universe that it works. I, I you totally know. agree. I'm, it's amazing. It, it makes JavaScript as sane as what it does. Yeah. 
Um, Especially after the IOJS kind of like kicked him in the face and then came back to the fold and like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll stay out of all that. <laughs> yeah, well, um, th- there were some needed changes that came out of that. Uh, but, you know, one of, the, one of the constructs that NPM has is you could have multiple versions, you know, like let's say someone's using something like underscore mm-hmm. or Lodash. Let's, let's say, you know, and two different packages need two different major versions of Lodash that load successfully and call, you know, it calls the right one based on what your dependencies are in your yeah. package yeah. and like an entire tree of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and what we don't really have in Salesforce is support for simultaneous multiple installs of the same thing, but different versions. And that's that's tough because, you know, Salesforce is, is very much Java uh, under the hood. And, you know, the way that Java solves that is it doesn't... See, I know nothing about Java. So, okay. Um, you know. So Java has this thing called OSGI, which is a... Um, it's really a, mo- a kind of a module type of thing, but it includes a, a class loading mechanism. And in Java, like, you know, kind of everything's scoped to a class loader. So when you reference, you know, foo, a class called foo, and, and a certain version of it, like a, the class loader is just going to go and blow that into memory, basically. Mm-hmm. If for some reason you need another version of foo, like someone like a, you, you need version 1.2 and version 1.3, because some code depended on one and another part of your code depended on another, that's the kind of thing that OSGI can can resolve because it can it can create different class loaders, it's almost different almost different spaces, right? For for classes to load into memory, and any I mean, almost all like non trivial Java applications tend to use something like that. It's not, so it's, my point is that Salesforce would have to do something like that, and that although is a mechanism that works, especially when you know what you're doing um, to scale it up. I don't know that we're I don't. I'm, I'm not sure how that would. Work. They have to do something like that Use, because yeah. Java as a platform does not support multiple different versions of Foo. And, and really, I mean, to be fair, JavaScript doesn't either. It's just that you can do. There's just tricks. I mean, JavaScript has got a, a, the primitives in the language that you can actually do tricks to load different versions of the same thing because it scopes them separately. Yeah. Um, so, like, if you think about making an Apex call to something that is, you know, let, let's take something really common like FFlib. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, the financial the, force yeah. stuff that mm-hmm. you know. So pe- people are using that domain module or whatever, um, and, and you, you have three different packages in your org, and you write some Apex class that calls that. What you'd have to do is see that this class is part of package X, and you'd have to go up and ask which other, which version of FFlib did you mean to run this call against, right? And that's cool if you're working within a package, but if you're outside the package, you're like, well, can I not hit one at all, or which one? Do, which one am I hitting if I'm not? If I don't have that, and so, and like, if you even, go, even if not, you, you know, at some point you'd have to still declare like what version of something you need. Yeah. Right. Right. And like, you know, what does that look like in an Apex call? I don't know. Right. Like, it's not that it's undefined as of yet. Right. How you would do that? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's I think that's probably one of the challenges. I know. Um, I just made this list of SFTX plugins yesterday. Okay. Suck it up on GitHub okay. and sort of you know like awesome React or awesome. CSS. Oh, awesome. SFDX. Awesome dash SFDX dash plugins <laughs> on uh, GitHub. And um, so people are already sending in stuff, which is good. Uh, but one of the one of the uh, one of the people whose plugin is open source pretty much did that, where like you can ask a package through a Socko query, hey, what packages do you depend on? And then you could run the query again for that. So they're they're basically spider crawling mm. the dependency. Sequence. Yeah, it's of, transitive dependencies, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they would do with cross version issues. I'm sure there's some limits to how sophisticated that thing gets. Yeah. Um, but it's basically like if you create, push the scratch org and then you said push this package, but first install its dependencies, whatever they might be and whatever those might depend yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. It's got it's got it. I mean, that's the way it's got to work, right? I mean, yeah. 
So we have kind of, I don't know, I guess we have that first half of NPM, which is declare your dependencies mm-hmm. and be able to crawl them. Yeah. Those things exist, not necessarily all from Salesforce, but those things exist. It's really the, what do you do with dependency matching and yeah. like, you know, yeah, you know, is version 3.4.1 okay or will you take 3.4.2? Yeah, exactly. You know, those are the things that need to be worked out. And I've, uh, I'm sure someone's trying to figure it out. Yeah. And and then I was, I was just, you know, just pop this back to like a business level, like, and I wonder when, you know, at a, at a high level at Salesforce, when they're looking at, you know, you know, acquisitions they're going to make and, and their growth targets and managing the investor community and all this, you know, all these expectations, everything like, at what point does that filter back to someone who at an engineering level, like understands like what stuff is important and, you know, because this is what we're talking about right now is fairly esoteric stuff to, to, at the, from, to business people and to people that are, yeah. you know, managing and running Salesforce, um, and I just, it's like interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when, you know, whoever it is that gets to make the case that, hey, I think we should, you know, like we need this amount of budget to do this. You know, it's going to be a big project. It's going to take a lot of time and money and um, we need a team for it. Um, but here's why it's important. I'd love to hear that pitch on why it's important. Because uh, I mean, obviously, I'd, I'm, you know, yeah, you're pre- you'd be preaching to the choir for me, but just understand how, how do you communicate that to the higher ups of like, this is, this is important stuff. And I know you guys, you know, this is going to, you know, I guess you'd have to speak to it in their terms. Like, this is this is going to help, you know, further penetrate existing customers, um, you know, customers that have that have had these level of, like, more enterprise requirements mm-hmm. um, that have looked at Salesforce so far and said, eh, it's, you know, we're we're going to stick with AWS because, or, or whatever, or, like, you know, you our, our, our you Red Hat stack, uh, you know. Do you understand why Trailhead exists? I can give you my... Well, I think it exists. Yeah. I mean, I think it exists. Well, I mean, one, because uh, it it helps just obviously, you know, educates, you know, people on the on Salesforce platform, but also solves this, what we talked about earlier, off mic, right? This big problem Salesforce hands is, right, of, of what, right. probably one of their, I mean, if you look at, if when Salesforce does a SWOT analysis, right, that one of their biggest threats is, or weaknesses, I guess, or, or potential problems is, we can't get enough people in this ecosystem fast enough. You know, I mean, if Salesforce is seen as like the super expensive thing because everyone caught everyone's so expensive because the supply and demand's all out of whack, then that's going to hurt our ability to sell. Right. And I mean, you get how big of a growth curve the company has it's, in terms of like trying to get, and you need all these experienced professionals. So one way is, you know, is, is the trailhead approach, which is let's bring more people on board. The Self-service. Them, right? uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The other one, um, especially on the developer side, if you kind of see the direction that LWC has taken, which is like, you could walk in and not have to learn a whole bunch to deal with Salesforce as a developer on the web component side. Kinda. John and I talked about that the other day, or I say the other day. That could be yeah. three weeks ago. It's it's you know can you can you bring in like people who are like web developers because Salesforce's their attitude up until recently maybe it's still the case is that if you're going to be a developer we actually want you to know like all the admin stuff too because yeah. if not then you're really not going to know what you're doing right. And I think within the component space, you're like, I need someone to build me a component. You know, when you t- get those theoretically, things, it's isolated, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's you it's got, got inputs a, and outputs. It's got a scope. Yep. And, you know, and what I would teach someone if I were meeting someone off the street who was a developer, I'm like, here's how you get data and metadata in and out of the platform. You know, here's kind of what those calls look like. Here's the the library. You know, here's the modules you import. Yeah. But everything else, if you if you're building web components and you know JavaScript, you'll you'll understand. It's, it really you'll be at home, right? right? Yep. Um, and so. That has not just been the web component side, but the way we test web components with Jest, the way we 
lent them with ES lent and VS Code, you know, all these things that are non-proprietary mm-hmm. industry standard sure. things. Yeah. Um, and so I think getting our deployment mechanism stuff, the closer you're in line with like normal. And so if you're like, okay, great. If you understand NPM, this packages, packages. You yeah, know, right. Um, as, as, there's always weird stuff about Salesforce, right? That someone will need to understand. But if you can make as much of that stuff normal as possible, you sort of broaden the number of people that can come on quickly and understand things and be productive. Yep. Versus, hey, let me explain Aura to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and oh, so, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's like actually a great example of one reason why LWC is a pretty significant game changer. I mean, you can bring in, well, and I think circling back now, I'm actually asking, now I'm realizing why you asked me the the probing question of like, why is um, why is Trailhead so important? Well, it's the same reason why LWC is, some, or it's, it's, they have a share of common reason why LWC is so important. It's to get people in this ecosystem yep. without a massive learning curve. Right. So uh, I can solve the learning curve. There's some things that you might need to know about. How do you internationalize things? You know, what are the data security implications of calling, you know, data service versus Apex. Yeah. You know, there's there's some things that someone needs to be aware of, but they're probably not day one types of things, you know? Um, and, and like you were talking about, you know, if you have someone who knows what they're doing and mentoring this person, it can be like, okay, here's the thing you need to watch out for. But overall, 90% of your job is going to be something that feels familiar. And you're in an IDE that you're used to, you're used to ES Lent, and you're used to uh, just you yeah, know, testing it's all the and same stuff like tools, that, right? yeah. you know, and you know, you have a package JSON inside your LWC folder, and it's executing things, and you, you know, check it in, and you have post commit hooks, and you're like, okay, I get it. You yep. know, nothing, nothing is exceptionally weird. Um, and then, you know, the other thing you have is a lot of a lot of companies where like this is how we do it, and we want to do it this way, and then Salesforce comes in, you know, and they're like, oh, that's different, that's different, that's different, that's different, and it becomes. It becomes hard to operate. Yeah, you know, um, especially if you're trying to do a deployment of Salesforce connected with deployments of other things that touch Salesforce. You know, and, and so I think having some of those really common things that feel the same, yeah, things that work the same, mm-hmm. um, makes it easier. Oh, totally agree. And I mean, and and there's a reason that the tools that you mentioned these these you know widely available you know testing tools and and uh, editors and whatever why they're popular because they they're really nice to work with mm-hmm. and they and they work right and yeah more of let's hey salesforce let's use these things that are already great that people love and a little bit less of you know proprietary stuff i mean i can remember um 14 no no uh i don't know what this been 10 years i don't know sure it must have been shortly after like apex and visual force came out but i was at a small java conference and i kind of gave a got up and gave this little talk like hey I kind of work in the Salesforce space, and here's their, you know, they got Apex and Visual Force, and here's how you create, you know, database tables and different things. And everyone, I mean, the, the basis of the response is like, that's really weird, mm-hmm. right? And it, in a way, it is kind of weird. It's, it's weird. It's weird to, you know, like normal developers. I'm doing a lot of air quotes here. You can't see them <laughs> if you're listening, but. Um, you but a lot of that's improved. Sound a lot that. of that's improved. You know, like SFDX, kind of, it's kind of like, if you can run NPM, you can run SFDX, right? Um, if you can develop, if you're a Vue or a React developer, you can do LWC. And so it's getting like, it's getting less weird and more like, hey, I can, I might be able to actually d- convince some of my developer friends to actually come in to do some work for me. Yeah. Because it's kind of normal. And it's, it's getting more normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that, and some of the openness too, 
um, where you know a lot of the SFTX stuff is open source. Yeah, and it's an extensible plugin system. You know, so I I when in the talk I kind of got into some of the plugins I've written. Um, but that's another thing where people are like, "Hey, I can't do this thing in the metadata API. Am I just hosed?" Like, no, just write a plugin. It's it's Node. It's yeah. not going to. Yeah. It's Node and TypeScript. Hey, and share it. Share it out. You know. Yeah, nothing weird's going to yeah. happen. And by the way, you know, you may have to go in through the REST API. You may have to go in through the browser driving, but you can go get that checkbox flipped and set up for yourself yeah. and unblock yourself um, and do it in a in a scriptable, um, idiomatic way for SFDX so that it's not like this weird thing. Um, and just sort of open sourcing all of that, I think, has allowed people to solve those gaps ahead of Salesforce formally solving those gaps permanently. Yeah, yeah. and I just think we're we're also, I mean, speaking of open source, I mean, we're just in a in a space now where developer tooling, particularly around um, things like deployment and like the, all the tools we have, the the glue stuff together, um, it's it's just really important that those are open source because. Um, oh, what was it? Someone there was something I, I won't name it, but there was some um, someone announced a um, an app exchange package that's kind of like a developer tool thing, and it looked kind of interesting. But I immediately saw that it was it's not open source. I'm just like, I, I can't use this. Hmm. Um, it's not that I don't want to pay. It, it's a, it was a free thing. It's not. Right. It's, only, it's not even a, a well. I pay for things. I mean, I actually do pay for developer. It's, it's the whole like class of like what things developers will pay for and what they want is a whole it's a whole other interesting topic. But um, no, it's just that you know you're forming a dependency on something that you have no control over and you don't have the source. So even if you wanted to take the effort to enhance it or fix it or get yourself out of a bind of some sort, you're, you you can't. And there's just some things that's actually really important that they are open source so that you do have that capability if that if it if it's necessary. Um, it's really important. So yeah, I, that, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's just, it's interesting watching. I mean, I've been in the, and I've been working with Salesforce since I think 2003 mm. and just, you know, the, you know, it's it, looking back. It feels like it's been you know this like slow evolution, but it but slow but slow but steady evolution to a little CRM application. To you know, they slowly you know added you know platform things and and of course more like um, more you know the the different clouds that have been added and then the and then actual actual developer type uh, things because initially there was just there was an API. The only like developer related type of thing there was there was a, was an API. That was it. Yeah. Um, it's before um, my time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think I'm 2010. So. <laughs> okay. But now it's you know it's um yeah they just I mean they 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 keep going so it's it's a good direction. Like I said, I mean I've always I'm always cheering for that that whole DX initiative. I think it's needed and um, they they they're doing good things. So it's made it's made a lot of cool stuff that I do possible. Yeah, exactly. Know, I mean in a way that wasn't two years. I mean ago. in fact, I mean a lot of and and your your talk at at the extracurricular. I mean. I don't know how you would have managed that without what you were able to build for that. And that was all enabled by DX and some of these other tools. So, yep. I mean, that just goes to show you the type of things you can do now that were not possible just a few years ago. So, yeah. And if you're willing to write plugins, there's a whole lot more, you know, there pretty sure. much is zero problems you can't solve. It's it's like slightly inconvenient. Um, but it's one of those things where like, because that, because that ecosystem is, Lends itself to source code and openness, and and npm packages are not really closed. You know, you could go look inside. Any I don't think of those. they are at all, right? Are they? Yeah, I mean, like, are there are there closed source npm packages? No, I mean, okay. I don't think it, I don't think it could exist. <laughs> like, like you know, like those things will be in your node modules folder, and you can pretty much open them. Yeah, you know, and poke around yeah. and stuff. Um. So yeah, the the uh, I mean that whole that whole way of doing things, I think, keeps things. 
um, you know, you can unblock yourself and you can share it out. And so it, it, that works pretty well. Yep. Um, you, you'll also see, you know, like JS Force. Have you used that one before? Uh, I have used JS Force. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that is all littered through SFDX. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff is dependencies on something that didn't even come from Salesforce. Yep. You know, that was um, who worked on that? Was it Dave Carroll? I can't remember. Um, JS Force. I don't think it's ours. That's not. I don't think so. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Um, is that uh, so? The what is it? JS Force. Does it let you like you know? Does it gives you like a, an API to like the Salesforce APIs basically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's not. Salesforce? It's a no. yeah. It's a JavaScript friendly. So okay. you, you could run it in a browser app. You could run it on Node. Yeah. You could run it. You know, anywhere that you can run JavaScript. Okay. Uh, but it let you know you could be like, oh yeah, uh, connection. So like handling all of your authentication, all of your queries and record updates and pretty much, you know, pretty much wrappers for all the APIs, including chatter and analytics. And yep. it's it's a really cool package. Yeah, I think I've I think I've used it in conjunction with the mobile SDK to do um probably yeah. Um what do they call it? Like high like a hybrid, yeah. you know, Cordova. Yep. Um mobile app. Yeah, that's a whole other use case for it yeah. as well. Cool. Um but yeah, someone else, you know, we just used it because it was there and we, you know. It works really well. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, anything else you want to cover before we before we break? So you're in town for um, Dallas World Tour. Yeah, the Dallas World Tour. Yep. So you talked about your workshops you're doing tomorrow, and is is it all tomorrow? I so I actually got out of it because um, so there's someone else that's flying in to oh wow nice to uh, represent us here. So I think I'm off the hook. Yeah, we're doing uh, we're doing workshops. Um, I think we've got some demos. I think there's uh, some presentation stuff that we have as well. Um, but yeah, I uh, we're doing a new format with workshops where it's a little bit bigger, and we used to do them sort of within the expo floor, and now they're going to be in their own room. Okay, this is the first time we've done it this way, yeah. so I definitely wanted to. Come, I mean, I live in the state anyway, and I definitely wanted to come up and kind of see how this new thing worked, and, and if there's anything we want to change about it. Um, yeah. So we've got the person that runs our events team as well, um, and so then of course I'm presenting some of the workshops too, since I'm. Here, yeah, and I'll get to experience that as a presenter, but get to watch some of the ones I'm not presenting because mm-hmm. um, we do sort of dev, admin, and then a whole series of like lightning adoption things for the customers that are like, oh, how do I, what do I do with my JavaScript buttons? How do mm-hmm. I yeah. turn on a subset of my users for lightning, lightning reports and dashboards, like those types of things that people that are in transition might be interested in playing with and getting yep. hands on with. Uh, so anyway, get to see all that and yeah. try the format. That's cool. I wonder, do you have any idea what the numbers are on on number of orgs that are still on, like, have not, at least to some degree, enabled Lightning? Um, most orgs are on Lightning. Yeah, I feel I feel like it would be. I don't know. There was I feel like there was a, there was a tipping point, like in the past year or two. I used to see more classic, and now I feel like I hardly ever see classic. Yeah, you don't see it very often. And then you've got you've also got orgs that have enabled Lightning and transitioned a lot of their company to it. And yeah. there may be like some team that's using something that they don't sure. have, right? Yep. Um, so there, there's people that are still in mixed environments. Yeah. And or or they let their users choose. Yeah. You know, there's there's also some of that. Yeah. But yeah, you re- you rarely see it anymore. Um and it's and it's uh uh it's going pretty fast now. Yeah. Anything else? Nope, that's it. All right. Shane McLaughlin. And to that I say, good day, sir. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome.